Welcome to the Bonfires of Social Enterprise. This is Rami, and I'm your host for this fun episode with Rebecca Smith of Better Life Bags. Rebecca has a very organic story about how she started her product, how social media became a partner, and how ultimately her husband's passion for a certain under-resourced group of women brought them to Hamtramck in the heart of Detroit. Before we hear from Rebecca, Jensen is going to share the fun fuel for this episode. Hey guys, this is Jensen with your fun fuel for this episode. Now today's fun fuel is going to be about Coach handbags and the history behind them. So the Coach company was originally created in 1941 by the Coach family out of a small shop in Manhattan. The Coach family had a small team of six and they were making wallets and billfolds out of leather and they were doing all this by hand. Five years after the company was created, in 1946, the Coach family joined up with a man named Miles Kahn and his wife Lillian, who owned their own leather handbag manufacturing business. Fifteen years later, in 1961, Miles Kahn and his wife ended up buying out the Coach family and making the two companies one company. Now, Miles was amazed with the leather baseball glove and how over time, the leather of the baseball glove becomes more flexible, softer, and more supple. So he attempted to mimic that leather in his own leather of wallets and handbags. Through attempting to mimic this, Miles ended up creating leather that was stronger, softer, and more flexible. Now, he also found ways to color the leather. And little did he know that leather itself actually holds color incredibly well. Now it wasn't until Miles' wife suggested to him that they not only make wallets and bags for men, but they start creating accessory bags for women. Now this was when their company really boomed. As the company grew more and more successful, Miles and his wife hired sportswear and fashion designers to add more creative elements to their bags making them even more successful and growing into the famous coach bags we see around the U.S. today. This is Jensen, and this was your fun fuel for today's episode. Very nice. Thank you, Jensen. Okay, let's transition. Please meet Rebecca Smith from Better Life Bags. Welcome, Rebecca, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Now, let's talk about what Better Life Bags is. So we make custom leather and fabric handbags. We manufacture them here in Detroit, Michigan, actually in a little city called Hamtramck, which is surrounded by Detroit on all sides. We hire women who have barriers to traditional employment, and they work here in our workshop. Some of them work from their homes. Whatever their specific need is, we try to work with them in that. And then our customers go onto our website, and they customize and design their own bag, and then we make it to order for them here in shop. Ah, okay. Social enterprise at its finest. We'll come back and dig in. Let's let the listeners know where we're doing this interview. So right now I'm actually in our workshop. So if you hear background noise, it's a working manufacturing studio, pretty small. I would say 1,600 square feet. So actually big to us. We just moved from a 700 square foot space into this space. So it feels enormous. So we're right here in Hamtramck. So we're cutting leather, we're cutting fabric, we're sewing, we're shipping all today. 
for those who might not have some knowledge about the community and the neighborhoods of Hamtramck within Detroit, would you mind giving us a feel of the demographics? Because in my opinion, it's incredibly unique. Yeah, it's super diverse. I believe it is Michigan's most diverse city. I've heard other people say that it's actually one of the most diverse cities in America. So 40 years ago, it was 90% Polish immigrants. And then over in the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, there's been a high influx of immigrants from Yemen, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Albania, Bosnia. So it's a melting pot of cultures. This is kind of a first stop for immigrants to land, get their feet on the ground, and then after a few years, they'll move out to the suburbs, and the second generation of immigrants will grow up in the suburbs. So we have highly first-generation immigrants here in our little city. So 26 languages are spoken at my kids' school. Signs, you see them in English. It feels like a different country. <laughs> yeah. And it's only two square miles, so it's very small. It's just an interesting place to be. Amazing food, <laughs> for sure, because everyone's bringing their authentic recipes, and then they're opening restaurants here, and it's a really fun place to be. Yeah. If you're not familiar with Hamtramck, those of you who are listening, you're going to have to make a journey and mm -hmm. check it out. It's just a stop worth having. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for that anchoring to your place. Now, would you take us on a journey of how this all started? And it will probably lead to the reason why you and your husband are actually living in Hamtramck. Yeah. So about seven years ago, I was pregnant with our first child. And I decided to make myself a diaper bag. My grandma had taught me to sew when I was really young and I'd lost the art of it. My mom had bought me a sewing machine for my birthday that year and maybe to spark something up again. And I had the time, so I decided, let's try it. I had a friend help me make my first diaper bag. So we went to the fabric store. We picked out the fabrics I wanted came home and created my very own diaper bag to fit my style and to match my son's nursery. I posted pictures of that bag on Facebook and some friends and family commented, you should sell these. I would buy one of them. You should open an Etsy shop, which Etsy had just come onto the scene about that time. And I had never heard of it before, but after doing some exploration, I realized anyone can open an Etsy shop. <laughs> you just have to have an email address and you can start selling things that you make on Etsy. So... I had nothing to lose. I thought it would be a fun hobby of mine that I could sew bags as I entered this new season of motherhood. So opened an Etsy shop. We named it Better Life Bags, even way back then, because my brother had introduced me to Kiva, the microloan company, um, yeah. for Christmas that year. He had given us a $25 Kiva gift card which at first I thought was the worst Christmas gift you could ever give anyone because I had to turn around and give that money away. You know, like, here's $25 that you, you can't have. You have to go and loan it to someone. Excellent. But, so I hopped on the site and I'm looking through all these profiles of people who are raising money in third world countries to open a grocery store, to buy more sheep. And I was just addicted to the whole concept. I thought it was so cool. So I decided these bags that I'm selling on Etsy, I can donate a percentage of them and give more and more loans through Kiva. So we named it Better Life Bags in the sense that these bags would be helping make someone's life better. 
by your purchase. And I sent a picture of, it was usually a woman, sometimes a man, that the loan was going to go help with the bag. So the customer was receiving a bag and then a picture and a story of the person through Kiva. So that was the original intent seemed very easy to me and just thought it'd be a simple little hobby. So about six months later, my husband decided to move us to Michigan. We were in Savannah previously, Savannah, Georgia, and he had been overseas in the military, just developed a real love for Muslim culture and Muslim people, and just thought it would be really cool to raise our kids and our family in a really diverse neighborhood a place that has need that we can really get grounded in and invest in. And so somehow he heard about Hamtramck, Michigan. We had never visited before. He just said, let's go. (laughs) And I think I was in this like newborn fog. I didn't realize what I was saying yes to. (laughs) So we packed up everything and moved to Michigan to this very different city that I had never in my life lived in anything remotely close to it. I grew up in suburbs and middle-class America. And so to be in a low-income city with so many different cultures, it was a real culture shock. I really desired to have friends with people of different cultures, but it was very awkward and hard. And my first friend that I made, she was from Yemen. Her name was Nadia. She spoke no English. (laughs) I spoke obviously no Arabic. But we both knew how to sew. So we spent our first evening together in my basement sewing a bag, one of the bags that I sold on Etsy. We had a good time. We didn't have to speak each other's language to sew. That's a universal language. Wow, I love this. That's how we spent our first night and together as friends. And about three years into living here, the business some bloggers caught wind of it. Someone with about 3 million Pinterest followers pinned one of my bags onto Pinterest and things just went crazy. I couldn't keep up anymore. It was too busy to do during my kids' nap times. I had two kids then at that point and I couldn't keep up. So I called my friend Nadia that I had spent time with in the basement sewing. She's gotten much better at English (laughs) as the years had gone by and I said, I need help. Can you sew all the insides of these bags, also all the outsides, and we'll put them together twice as fast. And she was really excited about it. So I started going to her house once a week, dropping off fabric and picking up the bags that she had done the week before. And then the same thing the next week, drop off and pick up. And I bring my kids and we would stay and we would hang out every week and just really deepened our friendship at that point. And I would pay her per bag, so per piece. I mean, eventually she got so good at the insides that I said, here, I'll teach you the outsides too. And she was doing the whole bag and we were getting out even faster at that point. And I'd say about six to eight months into this routine, she met me at our weekly drop off and pick up. And she said, I got to show you something. And she leads me upstairs to her kids' bedrooms. And for the first time she had bought her kids bunk beds whereas before they were just sleeping on the floor she has four children her husband works at a gas station and does his very best to make ends meet but it's never really enough and so this extra income in their family was allowing them to buy things that I consider necessities but they had never been able to afford before Hmm. So like a dining room table, like I said, bunk beds, they got their first couch. I started to really see the difference that a job could do for her. She's unable to get a job outside of her home. 
because she's a Muslim woman, because she's very conservative Muslim woman, I should say, in her culture, it's not easy to go out and get a job amongst mixed genders. But she can sew inside the comfort of her home, and she has four children. So, you know, getting a job outside of the home is impossible in that way, too. So we now have about 16 employees. All of them have some sort of barrier to employment, whether it's culture, language, education, kids. And so the Better Life Bag aspect of it switched from sending money to someone overseas that I would never meet to investing deeply into the lives of my neighbors and the people in our city. Wow. I just want to make a comment here. You've hit on something that is not talked about very often. Often we talk about the barriers of employment to be maybe former criminal records or past Mm -hmm. drug use. And you come over one level or go over one, I guess, one neighborhood and their barriers are language education and potentially culture. I think a lot of people don't think about that. And yet it does prevent. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, the unexpected barrier to employment. Because definitely when we say we hire women with barriers to employment, you think ex-con, people Mm -hmm. trying to enter back into the prison system. But there's a whole gallery of women that have different barriers to employment. Right. And sometimes it can just be got some children at home that you have to talk about and it's got to be some type of employment that you can sneak into the cracks of motherhood you know (laughs) wow so you're up to 16 employees now and so some are in your workshop right and some stay out of the home as you told us in the beginning right yeah we let them choose our newest seamstress that we hired is from Afghanistan she's an asylum seeker to the states and she is free and able to come into the workshop every day to work so she spends Monday through Thursday in the shop with us which is really fun just to get to see her and interact with her on a daily basis and then our other seamstresses do about 90% of the bags in their homes and then they come into our shop once a week for a couple hours and they use our industrial sewing machines to finish up any leather work and then they pick up their next batch for the week. Okay. And let's stay on this social mission of employment. What else are you noticing that changes with the women after they've been with you for a season? What other subtle things do you tend to notice? I think one of the unexpected things that even I didn't see coming is We have so many different cultures represented in our 16 employees. We have African-American, we have Bengali, we have Yemeni, we have Afghani, we have white American. And to see all of that interact on a family level, I think is really unique. I actually remember the first day that our African-American woman started work some of our seamstresses were actually a little bit afraid and Mm. they had never interacted or talked or been in the same small space with people that were not from their country and to see that stereotype be overcome and to see them say hi to each other and hug and share a meal together is just really really cool and something I never would have anticipated would be a result of this type of social enterprise. Mm. It's reminded me of some of the work we've done in other countries where 
there's Christian, Jewish, and Muslim, and finding this common denominator, mm -hmm. whether it's a cultural or a religion or whatever, you could fill in the blank. If the hearts, I like to say, are graceful enough to take the time to find that common denominator, now you've got something to build on together. There's always something in here. We've got motherhood. We've got similar perhaps reasons why they have barriers and then yet they're all coming together around producing a product it's mm -hmm. just really really great yeah it's a lot of fun yeah challenging but a lot of fun oh yeah I'm just imagining you've got to have a lot more patience because there's translations going on right <laughs> yeah a lot can be lost in translation for sure <laughs> Even quality translations on what our customers in America are expecting their product to be quality-wise mm. was a huge jump that we have to make with every new seamstress. They are in quite a training period before we start shipping out their products. Not good or bad, but quality expectations are different in various countries than they are in America. And that's been interesting. Sometimes I joke with my husband that things would have been so much easier could I just kept sending money overseas <laughs> but anything that is hard is always worth it in my opinion and so I wouldn't change anything for sure but um, sometimes that seems so much easier <laughs> right <laughs> let's go to your husband for just a minute when I met Neil I was so taken aback at his heart he had yeah. gone overseas served in the war and instead of coming back just like, oh, I got to get home, I got to get away from this. Mm -hmm. He came back with a burning in his heart to serve the culture and moves his whole family from Savannah to mm -hmm. Amtramic. I just was struck by the burden of his heart to help a group that's very different from him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not just he's a man, these are women. There was differences in where he grew up differences in religion yet yeah, he was so burdened to serve I was just so struck by that yeah he's a incredible man we would not be here if it weren't for him I would not have the guts to move out of something that was comfortable to me and move into a new city I would not have had the guts to keep going with the business when it seemed too big or too scary or too hard if it weren't for his cheerleading a lot behind the scenes. I mean, he definitely doesn't get enough credit outwardly for the success of the business or even the ideas, the social enterprise ideas behind it. He has definitely been the visionary behind it. He has been the servant behind it. He stayed home with our kids as a stay-at-home dad for at least a year and a half while I got things off the ground and now we share parenting duties and all of that but he has put a lot of his dreams and a lot of his wishes on hold for the business and helped us really get that going but yeah he's definitely the lifeblood behind it all right big shout out to Neil yeah <laughs> I love you Neil <laughs> so let's transition here to the bags themselves these amazing bags could you just start to describe your product itself yeah so they're leather and fabric combination bags some of our bags can be made with all leather but none of them can be made with just fabric so there's leather somewhere on every bag everything is custom and made to order so our website is interactive so you go on our website and you pick a style of bag that you really like and we have over 45 fabrics and three leather colors that you can 
click on and see them pop up on this white sketch of a bag in all sorts of combinations. I haven't sat down and do the math to think about how many actual combinations of bags you could create on our website, but you're essentially creating a one-of-a-kind piece. And then it's made to order with about a two- to three-week turnaround time. And as we were creating this company, I never wanted to be a charity. I never wanted someone to get their bag, get their product, think it's poor quality, and then say in their minds, oh, well, at least it was for a good cause. I Mm. never wanted that to be what people thought about our company. I wanted them to get a really awesome product that they would have bought anyways. And then the additional exciting part is that a woman in America made this product instead of being overseas. I wanted the social impact to be equal to the amazing product. So we work really hard to make our bags the best quality they can be. And we're constantly getting feedback from our customers and improving on monthly basis. So some of them are traditional purse, like yes. bag style. Some are more like backpacks, right? They're, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have about 30 styles, I think. Mm. We have some small accessories, like we have a keychain. is the smallest thing you could purchase. We have some wristlets. We have wallets. We have crossbody bags. We've got totes, diaper bag, backpacks. We even have a bike bag that clips onto the front of the handlebars of your bike. Mm. And then it can be worn as a backpack or a crossbody. So it's like a three-in-one bag. Wow, very cool. Very yeah, cool. All sorts of things. And we know you've set this bag at a normal price for that kind of bag, but you've done a good job because there's enough profit here where you can take some time to be a little bit inefficient in the early stages of your production to employ this type of employee. At the end of the day, you're making a profit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We specifically chose to be for profit. I think we probably could have gone either way, but I really believe in sustainable business. I really believe that if you have a product that you're selling, then that product should be able to sustain the good that you're doing, that you shouldn't have to rely on donations to keep going. So there was a period of time where I was working for nothing. So, I mean, it wasn't from the beginning, we weren't successful in a profit standpoint. My husband took me out to Panera one day and said, if you can't make at least minimum wage for all these hours you're putting in, then we've got to do something else for our family, is what he said. It kind of lit the fire under me because I loved my job so much. I didn't care what I was getting paid, but I thought, wait, you're right. We have to support our family in this too. And so that's really when I started thinking about profit margins. And that's around the same time I started hiring Nadia, our seamstresses. So it all kind of got real serious about four years ago. And on our website too, we have transparency images where you can see exactly where the money for each product is going. So we really do try to keep our products as reasonable as possible for the American consumer, but they're not $25. They're not something you could run out to Target and pick up because we are hiring from America and we are investing in these women and trying to provide resources for them, no interest loans or helping them with childcare or different things as needs arise among them. Yeah, so that's the story of how we got profitable. (laughs) And how, just give us a feel, seven years ago, about how many bags did you put out per year to where you are now? 
Okay, so seven years ago, I was probably doing one or two a week. So one or two bags a week. And now we ship out 400 a month. Wow. So definitely, (laughs) definitely gotten large. The math of that strains my brain in a moment, but it is some wonderful exponential formula of how that expanded. I can just tell all the listeners are listening to like, gosh, someone found us in a blog or social media Mm -hmm. picked us up. And sometimes we get emails from the listeners like, I wish that would happen to me. But there is sort of an element of you keeping it going. Would you mind sharing with those listeners that might be wondering about that question? Like, how does she keep it going now once you're noticed? I think the idea of an overnight success is not true. I mean, anything that we see pop up as overnight successes have been working tirelessly for years before they got their first break or before that blogger pinned something on Pinterest. I had spent three years working on these bags and promoting them on social media. And so I've always in my mind thought that I want to be the tortoise from that fable the tortoise and the hare I want to grow really slowly and really organically because fast growth really scares me I think a lot of people who have a large burst of growth don't know how to handle it I know we wouldn't know how to handle it and it shuts them down often and is the opposite effect of what they're hoping so I look at competitors or people who I even think might be competitors I try to just put my head back down to the ground look at the path straight in front of me and remind myself that I want to be the tortoise. Like I want to do this slow and I want to do this right and take it at a pace that works for our company. And social media is free marketing. We really would not be here if it weren't for social media. I happen to really love social media. So that was a natural fit for me to want to promote our products on Facebook or Instagram or blogs and I had a lot of relationships in the blogging community that I could send product to in exchange for a review to their readership but definitely don't write off social media as a quick and easy way to start getting your name out there. Right. And it just takes some time, right? You got to be a bit dedicated and disciplined, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. It's not an overnight thing. In one year I should see this take off. I think it's like in a four or five years, I'm hoping to have it take off. I always like to think of it as, to use our analogy we use all the time here, bonfires of social enterprise. Once it takes a minute to get that fire going, but the social media works the same way. For a season, if you just keep putting a log on the fire, keep feeding it, it has a little bit of a movement of its own if you keep feeding it. And for a little while, it will keep going on its own if you stop feeding it. But it's just a little bit of work in the beginning, but then... It's just a process of feeding it, right? Yeah, definitely consistency. And just keep doing it. Even if you don't think people are looking or watching, just keep being faithful and keep being consistent. Yeah. I just want to say one more thing about that comment you made about moving through in a turtle-type fashion. Mm-hmm. Our culture, especially in the U.S., there's a few myths around the growth of small companies. We've studied small businesses for, gosh, almost 30 years now. And when the tech bubble happened, it was like this really exciting thing. It's like, woo, boom, you can go really fast, really big with very few employees. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, some investors and some of the other folks that rate and score businesses 
don't tend to transition back to social enterprise and if you are a social enterprise like yourself where you're hiring a certain people group and you're helping to pour into their lives they're human beings they're not robots yeah. it's not technology so things do have to go slower I like to say if it involves food or animals or people we all have our own living breathing agenda and there's hearts involved and we all have to pay attention because if you take the time to pay attention to the people over time your business will stay open yeah given all other factors I just wanted to kind of land on that for a moment all right if you could just let yourself dream big what could this maybe grow into your truth of the moment yeah. <laughs> truth knowing effects today okay well I'm always hesitant to think like that I want to change the way that we define success even like what you were mentioning before for these we see some companies grow so fast and so quick I don't know that that is a definition of success for everybody I think if we stay at 16 employees for the rest of the life of this business, but we and our revenue never grows beyond what it is now, but we are investing well in those 16 and we are loving them well and their lives are being changed, then I feel like that would be success. Oh, yes. So I do dream about what could happen here. But so with that being said first... We really want to start designing and printing our own designs, our own fabric designs. We would love to have our own tannery overseas somewhere where we're able to hire ethically and intentionally in a different country for the production of our materials. I think we'll always keep the manufacturing here, but to be able to have control over the way our materials are produced would be just amazing for me. So those are some large dreams, I suppose. I feel like if everything ended tomorrow, I would still feel very proud of what, oh my what gosh, has yes. happened here. Oh my gosh, yes, I'd say so. From an idea of making a diaper bag to all this employment, well, how would the listeners get to your website? Would you mind giving us some of that and your sure. social media addresses? Yeah, so you can go play around on our website, and I really mean play around because we have customers who spend hours designing bags on our website. It's really <laughs> fun, and that's at betterlifebags.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook, same thing, at betterlifebags, and I'm personally on Instagram at Rebecca Smith Online. if you want to follow my personal behind-the-scenes journey of what it's like to be a mom and run a company and all of that. I post a lot about that there on my personal account. Wow. Excellent. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time. A big hello again to your husband and all the ladies. We love the bags and thanks, thanks for everything you're doing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's time to reveal the mystery sound. Here's the sound we gave you last week for Better Life Bags. This is the sound of an industrial sewing machine sewing leather at the Better Life Bags workshop. Visit our Facebook page where we will announce the winners. This is Destiny, and I will talk to you next time. It's time to close out this episode with a special Detroit artist curated by Assemble Sound. 
please meet Erin Allen Kane with her song, Honey. Baby, hey, I got a taste for unusual things. This is nothing typical running through my veins. Touch the melted stone into a puddle, go. Envious hands tired of working alone. They say there's no such thing as a smart fool. Cause fools are listening to fools. But I'm a fool you never met. And I'm willing to bet you won't fool honey trench on top. Don't walk Strawberry away. Strawberry lips, chocolate crimson skin. Deep to see hapless women sing. Making all my words into a sweet melody. Floating away, it's crashing so heavily. Rolling thunder, stirring from within my core. Let it ring, let it pour. I should be a show. Let it rain, let it pour. Wet me out and watch me a show. Put it on you, baby. Why don't you help me, help you? I'm a fool. 